Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig with details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and how the tech are you? And Happy Halloween! This episode is publishing on Halloween, October 31st, 2022. That's for those of you in the future who are listening back on this episode. So throughout this month, I have published a few episodes that are at least tangentially connected, if I'm being generous, to to scary, spooky stuff. It's a little tricky with tech because I don't want to go into, like, really big paranormal kind of things and technology that purports to do stuff that's impossible because that really just comes down to debunking. I want to do some, you know, some stuff that, that has spooky names, but ultimately is not that scary stuff like vampire power and zombie computers. Although those are scary. Uh, the phrase ghost in the machine was an episode, that kind of thing. But on Halloween itself, I thought we could chat about something Einstein himself referred to as spooky action at a distance. And this does tie into tech. We are going to talk about tech, not just 
theories and physics. And we're also going to talk about tech that's in the realistic world and in like science fiction-y kind of applications. Now, Einstein, when he said spooky action at a distance, wasn't trying to describe, you know, ghosts involved in a long distance relationship or anything. So we're not going to have any specters making, you know, erotic FaceTime calls to each other. That's not what we're talking about here. Instead, we're going to talk about quantum mechanics. So at the heart of this concept of spooky action at a distance is this idea of quantum entanglement and how quantum entanglement violates locality. So Einstein was a truly brilliant physicist and mathematician, but he was no Einstein. Okay, all right, that makes no sense. He was an Einstein. He was the Einstein, but there were certain leaps he wasn't yet ready to make. And a big one of those is how quantum mechanics isn't necessarily confined to locality. Einstein had issues with quantum mechanics in general because quantum mechanics... Uh, has a lot of elements to it that seem completely alien to us based on our understanding of classical physics. And there were certain bits of that that Einstein had some real problems with. So what is locality? Well, it's what it sounds like, right? It's locality, is a, it describes that there's a limitation, like a regional limitation on physical events and their consequences. So in other words... Locality would tell us that an event in one part of the world could not possibly affect something very far away instantaneously because that would violate locality. You know, if I were to sneeze right now and then a tree were to fall over in the Philippines, you wouldn't say those two things were immediately connected because that violates locality. There's no, there's no causal uh, uh, agent there to make that happen, right? To, to go from my sneeze to the tree falling over in the same instant to make that make sense. So this is a little different. Actually, it's a lot different from the classic butterfly effect. That is another concept that uh, doesn't violate locality. So the butterfly effect is a way to describe aspects of chaos theory. And in the butterfly effect, a small change in a variable or a state can lead to a much larger change in a later state. So a classic example is a butterfly flaps its wings on one day and that little disturbance in the air ultimately contributes to, potentially provides the necessary impetus for a tornado that happens several weeks later. Or you might hear another version of this where a butterfly flaps its wings in South America and that contributes to a tsunami that later hits Southeast Asia, that kind of thing. The idea that little things can be the changing factor that determines whether or not a larger thing in the future happens or doesn't, right? But this doesn't violate locality because you have that aspect of time that allows something to develop further from an initial event with the quantum entanglement, the idea is that these things are happening instantaneously. There is no time between event one and event two. You have event one and event two is a consequence of event one, even if those two events are happening on opposite sides of the world. That is what Einstein had a problem with. 
you know, because he wanted to try and figure out how can you describe event one making event two possible if they're not in the same locality. And quantum mechanics said that does happen. And Einstein was like, no, that that can't be the way it works. It has to be that there are local events, local variables, perhaps hidden variables that explain why these things happen. And it looks like there's some sort of correlation or perhaps causal relationship between these events to us, but that's because we're misinterpreting things. We're not looking at the actual cause. That's what Einstein was saying. He was just not able to make a jump to understanding quantum entanglement. You can understand why, right? Because this idea that something happens in one place and that can cause a reaction that is literally a world away at the very same time, that flies in the face of our own experience, right? If you were to drop a piece of pizza and you saw it hit the floor, you would be shocked to learn that you caused an earthquake on the other side of the world at that exact same moment. Like, pizza hits the floor, earthquake across the world from you, and that you were somehow the cause of it. That wouldn't make sense. Even if somehow vibrations from the pizza hitting the floor managed to travel all the way through the earth to the other side, it would take time for the vibrations to go through the entire planet. It would take the speed of sound through that various media for it to get there. And then, you know, who knows what happens once it hits the core. We'd have to watch a lot of science fiction and horror movies to figure that out. So maybe your whale of anguish also would contribute. You know, you just lost a piece of pizza, so obviously you're going to have a, a grieving period. But we're still limited to the speed of sound here. It takes time for sound to make its way anywhere. So even if it were somehow able to go through the entire Earth and cause this earthquake, it would take a lot of time. It would not be an instantaneous reaction. This really gets to one of the big obstacles when it comes to understanding or explaining quantum effects because the quantum level, the quantum world, obeys a different set of rules from the classical realm. Stuff that is impossible in our day-to-day -day existence is commonplace in quantum systems. So let me give you another example. Heisenberg's uncertainty principle explains that we have a limit when it comes to describing particles. And we're really talking about like quantum particles, subatomic particles, that kind of thing. So the classic example is describing a particle's position and its momentum based on initial conditions. So Heisenberg hypothesized that the more we know about one of these two conditions, i.e. its position or its momentum, well, the less then we can know about the other one. So if we had perfect knowledge of a particle's position, we would know nothing about its momentum. We would be unable to describe where and at what speed this particle was moving. So it'd be kind of like a snapshot, like a perfect snapshot. We could see the position of the particle at that moment in time, but we would know nothing else about it. Likewise, if we had perfect knowledge of the particle's momentum, we would be unable to describe its position at all. So because of this limitation, we cannot know with certainty both pieces of information. So we typically will describe particles like these as existing within a, a range or zone of potential positions at any given time. You can think of it almost like a cloud that this particle could exist within. Uh, and it could be anywhere within that cloud at any given time that you could take the, the opportunity to detect it 
and in that instant detect where the particle is, then all those possibilities collapse into one fixed position. But before you look, it could be anywhere in that cloud. So there are regions within that cloud where the particle is more likely to be found in a given moment, but there's at least the possibility that it could be at any point within the cloud at any specific time. Now, not only is this different from what we experience in our day-to-day life, where we can explain with decent confidence a person's position and momentum, it can lead to other weird quantum effects that really make a difference in technology, such as quantum tunneling. So this has a real effect on electronics and circuits, particularly with things like uh, processors, computer processors. So when we're talking about electronics, you can think of electronics at a very, very, very basic level as being all about controlling where the flow of electrons can go and what work the electrons will have to do along the way as they make their way to their destination, which is typically a positive terminal. You know, electrons are negatively charged, and so opposites attract. It wants to go to the positively charged terminal. Electrons are subatomic particles, and they behave according to the quantum effects described by folks like Heisenberg. So if we wanted to focus on a single electron within a circuit, we would have to describe its location as existing within a sort of zone or field. We can't point to the specific location as the electron moves through the system, but we can describe a, a, an area of probabilities where the electron could be. Well, one of the most important components in circuitry is the transistor, uh, which acts like a gate. The gate can allow electrons to go through or it can prevent them from going through. So it's really a switch, right? It forms the basis of much more complicated systems. But it only works if, you know, it can actually keep electrons from going through. Well, it's possible that a zone of probabilities of an electron's position can actually overlap a gate. So if the gate is very, very thin, it's possible for the zone to extend to the other side of a closed gate. This means that it's technically possible for an electron to exist on the other side of the closed gate, even though the electron would otherwise have been prevented from passing through, because again, the gate is closed. Well, if something is possible, that means that sometimes it happens right? Even if you think, well, the electron didn't physically move through the gate, the, ch- the fact that there's a chance for it to be on the other side means that sometimes it is on the other side. So in a system like this, an electron can sometimes be on the opposite side of a closed gate and then keep on going. This is not good if your goal is to control the flow of electrons, because the whole purpose of the gate is to stop them from going. So this means you're going to start getting errors, and that, that's because electrons are going through parts of your system that they're supposed to not be able to go through. So let's imagine what this would look like in our day-to-day existence. Like if this same effect happened in our world, what would that be like? Well, we would not exist in fixed positions. We would exist in a world of possibilities from moment to moment. And we would only be in a specific position when someone was actually looking at us. So this means that sometimes we're in one spot as opposed to another. Maybe you walk up to a door and in the next moment you're on the other side of the door, even though you never opened the door, you didn't physically pass through the door. You're just now on the other side of the door. 
Now, you wouldn't want this because, like, imagine riding in a car and then suddenly you're not in the car. You're next to the car while going down the highway. That would be bad, right? So we don't want the quantum effects in our classical system. So it doesn't happen in our experience. But this does happen at the quantum level, and we know it does because we've seen the results as chip manufacturers have made chips with smaller and smaller components. If you just keep doing that, you start to see errors because you got you have this issue with quantum tunneling. So this requires computer manufacturing, uh, chip manufacturing companies to change the architecture and the materials they're working with when they're creating circuits in an effort to mitigate or prevent this from happening. Um, it's one of the reasons why people say there is an ultimate limit to scaling down individual components on chips because you start to run up against quantum effects and they become harder and harder to manage. All right, we're just getting started, but let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. 
We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Okay, so quantum systems behave in ways that are hard for most of us, myself included, who have limited exposure to the subject matter to really understand. Uh, I, I fully admit this. Like, I quote-unquote know about these quantum effects, but I by no means understand them. I have looked into them and read about them extensively, and at the end of it, I feel like, like I understand that these things happen, but I don't understand why they do. It's just, it's beyond me. It is a level of... Uh, mastery with mathematics and science that I lack. It feels like science fiction. Quantum tunneling definitely seems weird. Well, so does entanglement, getting back to that spooky action at a distance. Einstein himself was particularly weirded out by this concept. See, Einstein was looking over quantum hypotheses back in the 1930s and pointed out that, according to the math, the proposals would mean that it would be possible for quantum particles to sort of pair up in a way. And in this pairing, one particle's features would depend upon the other particle and vice versa. They would complement one another and not in the, oh, you look nice today kind of way. They would complement one another in that one, uh, one feature of one particle would be the opposite of another feature of the same feature of another particle, I should say. So here's an example. We can describe electrons as having a certain spin. It has to do with magnetic poles. I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but yeah, electrons have a spin. They actually have three inherent properties. They have a mass, they have a charge, and they have spin. The spin describes how the electron spins around its own axes. And we can describe the spin as having an up or a down direction. So a pair of entangled electrons, this is from a very oversimplified approach, a pair of entangled electrons would have one electron with a spin of up and the other electron has a spin of down. And should anything change the spin of one electron, the spin of the other electron would change instantly. So if electron one went from up to down, then electron two would go from down to up at that same moment. No matter how far apart they were, you could move them across the universe and this would remain the same until the system collapses and entanglement is severed. Uh, and the bit about, you know, disturbing the system really gets to be important, like this idea of the system collapsing. Quantum systems are extremely delicate things. Yes, you can separate these entangled particles and move them across the universe from one another and the entanglement will persist. But if you disturb the system at any given point, it collapses and that entanglement no longer exists. So they can collapse with the tiniest kinds of disturbances. Observing the system is enough to do that. And we call this the observer effect, that the act of observing changes the phenomenon we're trying to observe. Now, this idea 
This is one of those quantum ideas that I think we can actually kind of grab onto if we look at it from a different perspective, right? The idea that just by observing something or measuring something, you have changed it. I think that this is something we can understand if we take that idea into a totally different context. So for example, let's say that we've set up a social experiment and our experiment consists of an empty room. You know, maybe there's like a chair and a table there, but that's it. And we bring into this room a test subject. Uh, Maybe we've got one group of test subjects and we tell them nothing about the experiment. We literally just bring them into the room and leave them there. And then we tell them like, you know, you're just going to wait here. We'll be back. That's it. But let's say we have a second group and we're doing the same thing with them. We bring them into the room and we tell them they're going to wait there. But we also mention that the room is under constant observation. That There are hidden cameras that you can't see. They're hidden so well, you cannot see them in the room, but they will be recording everything and people will be reviewing the footage and even watching a live feed. But uh, just sit there and wait and we'll be back. Well, you can easily imagine that if you have a group where you didn't say anything about the room being under surveillance, you're gonna observe some behaviors that you're likely not gonna see in the other group where people are thinking they're being watched the whole time. Now, knowing that you're being observed is enough to influence you so that you don't get too wacky while killing time waiting for whatever is supposed to happen next. Now, obviously, quantum particles aren't shy or embarrassed or feel shame when we observe them. That's not what's going on. They don't yell out, cheese it, it's the heat, when we observe them. But when we do observe them, all the possible quantum states they inhabit collapse down into just one state. So we get a defined outcome as opposed to all possible outcomes. All right, let's get back to entanglement. In 1964, a physicist named John Stuart Bell presented a theorem that provided a testable means for this entanglement hypothesis. And he showed that quantum mechanics could explain correlations between distant quantum events better than any sort of local theory could. So unthinkably, to the Einsteins of the world, Bell's theorem passed Occam's razor. And yes, I brought up Occam's razor just so I could explain what that is. Let's say you've got something weird going on. You've come up with some potential explanations that caused the weird stuff. In fact, let's get specific. Let's say that the weird thing is that you found a particularly cold spot in your basement. And when you walk through it, you get that unsettling feeling that you've passed through something strange. Now, let's say you come up with a couple of potential explanations for this cold spot. And in one, you suggest that the basement is haunted and the cold spot represents a ghost. So you pass through some spectral form of a spirit. But your other explanation is that it's winter and the spot you pass through is both far from most heating vents and the one that is closest is a bit clogged up and needs to be cleaned out. Well, explanation one, that there's a ghost, requires first that you prove the existence of ghosts, because you can't say it's something that hasn't been proven to exist, right? You have to prove that first. And if ghosts do exist, why do they exist? What are they? How are they formed? How do they get here? What keeps them here? All that kind of stuff. For the answer to be ghosts, we actually need to be able to understand a lot of unanswered and potentially unanswerable questions. Whereas the second explanation is far more straightforward and it's testable. So the second explanation is actually the simplest from that perspective. 
We could also go with Mr. Spock's philosophy. When you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. That one's tricky, though, because sometimes something that we believe to be impossible turns out to actually be possible. It's just that we don't understand what's going on yet. Or we have, you know, uh, the wrong point of view when we're looking at the thing. And so we're focusing on something that appears to be impossible when if we had a different perspective, we would realize what's really going on. So, Mr. Spock, I got to pick some bones with you on that one. Well, Bell's theorem showed that as weird as the concept of quantum entanglement is, it was a far simpler explanation than trying to jump through hoops to explain apparent correlation strictly through locality. Uh, it became easier to explain these apparently connected events are at a distance are happening through entanglement than trying to invent scenarios in which two separate and unconnected local events produce results that only appear to be connected. Bell showed that this spooky action at a distance appeared to be a valid thing. Now here's the kicker. As soon as you attempt to measure an entangled particle, that connection, that interdependence between the two particles severs. So if one electron is spinning up and the entangled electron is spinning down, which is something that we don't know yet, we haven't measured it, and then we measure electron one, we see that it's spinning up, we know at that moment of measurement that electron two was spinning down. But we also know that this connection has been severed. It doesn't exist anymore. Now they're going to spin independently of one another. So measuring the spin of electron one again will give you no information about electron two. They're no longer connected. You cannot draw any conclusions. Same thing. If you measure electron two, you don't know anything about electron one. You only know at the moment of that, that measurement it, when the two were still entangled. This is an oversimplification, obviously. Bell's theorem explains how experimental results should show that metrics prove correlations above what you would expect if locality and local hidden variables were the only factors. So in other words, practical experiments would prove that correlation happens beyond what can be explained if locality is a firm, inescapable element. And experiments have shown that we do in fact see correlation beyond what we can explain by locality. So this might be spooky action at a distance, but the point is it's real. We have observed the effects. Now, this isn't to say that there is universal agreement and acceptance of Bell's theorem, or rather the interpretations of Bell's theorem. This is still an ongoing area of research and experimentation. But at the very least, the investigations show that locality, at least the way we understand it now, is not a factor, or at least not the only factor. Okay, we've got some more spooky, complicated quantum things to get through in a moment, but let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. 
Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Okay, let's talk about a related quantum effect. In fact, it's very closely related to some of the other ones we've chatted about already. You know, quantum tunneling shows us that when we're looking at quantum systems, we need to think in probabilities as opposed to fixed values. An electron has a probability of existing at a certain point within a region uh, that it could exist within, right? We don't know for sure until we measure it. So... We can just say there's a probability that it exists within this region. Uh, So that's one example of this, but we can extend that to lots of different quantum states where a quantum system could potentially inhabit any one of those quantum states at any given time, and it's not until we measure that it collapses down into a fixed value. Well, there's a related concept called superposition, And in superposition, the ability of a quantum system 
is to exist in multiple states all at the same time until the system collapses. Again, until we measure it. So instead of saying there's a probability of the system existing at any given state at any given time, we instead say with superposition that it exists in all states at the same time until we measure it, at which point it collapses into a single one. Now again, this is really hard for us to imagine compared to our day-to-day you know, experiences. You know, things are either one way or another in our world, right? I mean, they can't be always. Uh, like, like take a classic light switch, your, your little light switch that flips up or down. So that shows it has two positions, right? It has off and it has on. So the light switch is either off or it's on. It cannot be both. You know, you might be able to position the switch so it's precariously balanced between the two, but it's not actually off and on at the same time. It's one or the other. Either the circuit is open or it's closed. But in quantum systems, we can have a system occupy all possible states simultaneously until measured. They can be in superposition. It's also something that really got Erwin Schrodinger in a tizzy. Uh, Specifically, Schrodinger was responding to what is called the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. We're not going to dive down too far into the different interpretations. That is a matter for a different episode, but I do want to talk about Schrodinger for a second. He wanted to illustrate the absurdity and paradox of superposition, and so he presented a thought experiment. Imagine... By the way, this is a thought experiment that has animal cruelty in it. So fun times. But yeah, that's kind of how these things go. So imagine you've got a box and inside this box, you have a kitty cat. Uh, Also in the box is a sealed flask of poison. Uh, There's also some radioactive material in there that will eventually decay. It will, uh, atoms will decay from this radioactive material. You've also included in the box a Geiger counter And it's connected to a circuit so that if the Geiger counter detects a decaying atom, uh, it'll send a signal through the circuit that will cause the flask to shatter and the poor kitty cat will be poisoned and die. Now, here's the thing. We don't know exactly when an atom will decay. You know, again, we know a, a range of when the atom will decay, but we don't know precisely when that might happen. So... You've got your kitty cat in this box. You leave it alone for a few hours and you come back to the experiment. Well, there's a chance that an atom has decayed in that time. And if that happened, that means the Geiger counter would have gone off, caused the flask to break and would have killed the cat. However, there's also a chance that that has not happened yet. That would mean the cat would just be bored, but otherwise unharmed. So according to superposition, before you open the box, The cat is both alive and dead at the same time. It's only when you open the box and observe, i.e. when you measure the system, that the possibilities collapse into a single reality and you either have a lively kitty cat or you have a kitty corpse that you're going to have to clean up. Schrodinger was really illustrating how this idea is weird. And it brings up the question, At what point precisely would a quantum system in superposition collapse down into a single state? Now, there are other interpretations of quantum mechanics besides the Copenhagen one, and these take into account other factors besides observation and measurement. But again, it gets super complicated, and uh, honestly, I would just mess it up if I were to attempt to even explain them, because 
they require a level of understanding that I just don't have. But this is where we get that Schrodinger's cat scenario. So if you've ever heard of Schrodinger's cat, that's what this comes from. It was really a critique on this interpretation of superposition. Schrodinger was saying, isn't this inherently absurd based upon our our experience? Superposition is one of the aspects of quantum mechanics that we can actually exploit using quantum computers. You've probably heard me talk about quantum computers, that they rely on qubits. That's Q-U-B-I-T-S. That is the basic unit of information for a quantum computer. So in classic computers, we have bits, and in quantum computers, we have qubits. So a bit is a single unit of digital information. It is the smallest unit that we can have. And we typically represent a bit as having a value of either zero or one. So this gets back to our light switch, right? You can think of it as being off or on. It can have one of two values and that is it. That's as far down as you can get when you break down digital information. Qubits, on the other hand, get more complicated. A qubit, thanks to superposition, can both be a zero and a one simultaneously. Technically, it can be all values in between zero and one, sort of like balancing that light switch between off and on. But what good does this do for you to have a unit of information that can be both zero and one at the same time? Well, let's say we've got a computer problem we need to solve that has a lot of potential pathways to a solution, but we don't yet know which pathway is the best the one that represents the quote-unquote right answer. With a classic computer, you have to evaluate each pathway individually, and then at the end, you have to compare all the results against one another to determine which one is the right one. If there are lots of pathways, this can mean a ton of computational work has to be put into the effort, and potentially that the amount of time required to complete the calculation is longer than the age of the universe meaning it's practically, it, for all intents and purposes, it's impossible, will be extinct before the computer finishes the problem. So let's take this approach to the way we encrypt things, the modern cryptography. Uh, and we're going to keep this at a very high level. Essentially, your typical encryption method takes two very large prime numbers. Remember, a prime number is a number that's only divisible by itself. It takes these two large prime numbers, then multiplies those two prime numbers together, and this creates a product, which then we can use to encrypt data in some way. And the only way to decrypt the data, to reverse the process of encryption, is to have the correct very large prime number factors that we used to make that product. So if you don't know the prime numbers, you can't reverse this process. Well, a classic computer would need to go through all possible prime numbers in an effort to find the right ones that were used to make this product. It's a process called prime factorization. So a number might be the product of just two prime numbers. So the number 10, for example, is the product of two and five. Two times five is 10. Well, two and five are both prime numbers. Uh, but larger numbers might break into multiple prime factors like the number 126,356. Well, that can be broken down into the primes of 2, 2 again, 31, and 1,019. You multiply all those together, you get 126,356. 
Computers are pretty darn good at multiplying numbers and getting a result. They are not as efficient when they take a result and work backward to determine the factors used to produce that product. And that's the secret sauce behind modern cryptography. A classic computer could take longer than the age of the universe to solve a particularly difficult prime factorization problem. But a quantum computer with sufficient qubits and the right algorithm could theoretically solve for all possible factors to create a particular product. The qubits are able to serve both as zeros and ones at the same time. So if you've got enough qubits that are all in superposition, you're essentially working out all possible solutions in parallel simultaneously. Now, you'd actually get results that would have probabilities assigned to them. So again, once you get your results, it's not that you have, you know, the one and only answer, but you have various potential answers that are assigned probabilities. Typically, you're looking at, you know, the highest probability is, is likely to be right. Because, you know, once we get quantum computers that have these, these reliable qubits in superposition, and the right algorithms, uh, this is you know just a matter of time before it happens, then it will require us to shift to an entirely different kind of cryptography. Because once you do have these sufficiently powerful computers, it becomes uh, a, 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 an easy task to reverse the cryptographic process. And you just end up having essentially a skeleton key to all encrypted information. It, it's trivial how how easy it is at that point, assuming that you have a a properly powerful quantum computer and the appropriate algorithm to reverse the process. So that's why there's so much work being put into quantum cryptography, a process that would make it more difficult for a quantum computer to crack a cryptographic scheme. So that way we could maintain secret information. Otherwise, there's no chance of having secrecy through digital transfer. Now let's get to a science fiction-y element of the quantum world that people have talked about. So in quantum systems, we can have entanglement, and that entanglement can exist even if you were to separate two subatomic or quantum particles uh, to opposite ends of a universe. Does that mean we could have a system in which we have one entangled system in, say, a spaceship on the opposite side of the galaxy from us, and the other entangled system is here on Earth, and then we could have instantaneous communication between the two, right? We could have these two systems, and because they're entangled with one another, we could send information back and forth. Wouldn't that mean we'd be violating Einstein's theory that nothing can go faster than the speed of light? And does it, in fact, mean we could violate causality? Could we actually end up getting an effect before the cause? Well, the simple answer is no. So that's a relief, right? But why? Well, measuring an entangled particle in one location will cause the entanglement to sever. But you can't actually send any useful information that way. Uh, it becomes a local measurement. Now, it's a local measurement that's in two separate locations that are millions of light years apart. And you could say, well, be, because of the state of this system, we know what the state of the system on the other side of the universe was. Uh, but it was only at that moment of measurement. We don't know what 
state that system's in now because the entanglement has been severed. So you haven't actually sent any useful information. Uh, so there's no way to communicate. There's no way to do that. If you were to try and communicate, your communication would be in the form of classic bit style communication, which means you'd be limited to the speed of light. So while entanglement might be spooky, it cannot break the laws of physics, Captain. So uh, that I'm, I'm happy to report because otherwise we would have some really tricky things uh, ahead of us. Because if you can violate causality, I mean, there's all sorts of things though, from time travel to uh, the, the whole concept of like multiverses and stuff. It gets really wibbly wobbly, timey wimey, as the doctor would say. So I'm I'm thankful that as far as we understand it now, that's a that's a non-starter. But that doesn't mean that our understanding of quantum mechanics is by any measure complete. It definitely is not. And that we may learn other ways that we can exploit quantum systems to our benefit. Uh, that is really interesting stuff. And like I said. I understand the end result stuff, right? I, I can get my mind wrapped around that. I don't understand the how at all. Um, I remember when I was looking into something tangentially related to this, which was string theory, I was writing an article about how string theory works for how stuff works years ago. And I was, I mean, it's a good thing I'm already bald because I was ready to tear my hair out, but that would require reversing nature's whims. And I am not able to do that, but yeah, I was ready to tear my hair out because I was doing a deep dive. I was looking at interviews with, uh, uh, physicists and scientists and mathematicians. And I remember there was a point where one of them was asked point blank. Do you understand string theory? And his response was, I have dedicated my life to the study of this, but if you want the real raw answer? No. Like, I understand what the math tells me, and I understand why we need to account for things like multiple dimensions, for example, but I don't understand the theory at that granular level. And my reaction was, well, if the people doing the groundbreaking research into this field don't understand it, what chance do I have? So to me, the, the quantum world in general, not just string theory, but quantum mechanics in general, is this kind of spooky world because things behave in ways that seem counterintuitive to me because it is very different from the experience we have in the macro world. Uh, but yeah, fascinating stuff. And as I said, it actually does affect our, our electronics and technology today. Uh, I've talked to in the past about other things that are related to this, this high-level understanding of physics where we know it's true because we've experienced the consequences, things like relativity, which we know to be true because if relativity weren't true, then our satellites would behave totally differently than the way they do. But because we know we have measurable outcomes with our, our satellite systems that uh, uh, confirm relativity, we understand that's a real thing. I think that's amazing. I'm sure it's something that Einstein himself, while he may have suspected would one day become true, would have delighted in seeing that there would be actual 
ways to experimentally prove his theory. That would have been phenomenal, I'm sure. All right, that's it. I hope you have a happy Halloween. Be safe, be spooky, enjoy yourselves. If you have suggestions for future topics of tech stuff, I invite you to trick or treat by reaching out. One way to do that is to download the iHeartRadio app. It's free to download, free to use. You can use the little search bar to navigate over to tech stuff. There you will see that there's this little microphone icon. If you click on that, you can leave a voice message up to 30 seconds in length. You can even let me know if you would like me to use it in a future episode, in which case I will. I won't. Otherwise, I I would just reference it, but I wouldn't use the recording. Or you can always reach out to me on Twitter. uh, As long as Elon Musk doesn't nuke the whole thing into orbit. Uh, The handle there is techstuffhsw. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in exactly. to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, right. which is different than empathy. Yeah. Right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, sleep tight stories.